Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Jill Tarter, you're a legend. You're an inspiration <laughs> to me. You endorse my my uh, my piece of writing here called Losing the Nobel Prize, and I was super super proud to have your endorsement. It means so much to me. Where are you joining us from today, Jill? Oh, I'm locked down in Berkeley, right, as I have been since March. <laughs> Where else would we be if not locked down here in the lovely state of California? Uh, so I thought today it would be wonderful to have a conversation with you about your career, but also about all sorts of interesting questions from our guests. But the first thing I want to ask is, of course, everybody, it's burning on everybody's mind. Do you believe in Santa Claus, Jill? <laughs> This year, Santa's got a lot to live up to, right? <laughs> That's right. But the real question is, do you believe in uh, that some sort of intelligence is living or might be living near the uh, star system known as Proxima Centauri B and providing us with techno signatures? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> first of all, the verb believe is the wrong verb. Yes. Because it doesn't matter what I believe, what you believe. It's what is, right? And so this is... a. Uh, a scientific exploration to try and find evidence of someone else's technology, in, in my case. Um, the, um, the Proxima B story is a bit frustrating, right? It uh, never should have been made public. Uh, the observations were done in a way that is problematic in the sense that they did not have um, a second simultaneous observing capability they didn't have it was actually somebody else's data looking at something else um and so the the ability to have any kind of validation confirmation just wasn't there and you know i like to say that if i'd been running the uh show at ohio state um you never would have heard about the wow signal because the scientist had set up a certain uh protocol certain uh, criteria that a signal had to satisfy in order to be potentially a candidate. And the wow signal, though stronger than anything they'd heard, did not in fact fulfill those criteria. So um, you got to be willing to say, nope, nope. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, but yes, the wow signal kind of does, you know, dog the, the field. And I've always wondered why do people, you know, put so much credibility in that, in that wow signal. It was sort of one night, one night only. And, uh, and again, yes, it's not about belief. We have evidence. Seconds only. Say that? Oh, yeah, it was like one, one seven-second period. 72. Seven, 72. Oh, 72 seconds. seconds, yes. And it was never repeated again. And it doesn't rule it out. But as you say, we look for evidence. We are observationalists. And I've been having a lot of conversations on my channel with Nobel laureates and other uh, esteemed uh, guests. Uh, and, you know, at varying degrees, people do in science have uh, some strong amounts of faith. It surprises me how much faith people have, including things that maybe in principle can't be proven, like uh, like singularities, like uh, like multiple universes. And so I've always wondered, you know, when, when you do the work that you do, you've always done it quantitatively and you look for evidence, but is there at any point, you know, people say, what do you hope to discover? How do you react to that? Again, it's, it's not about belief, but surely you must, as a human being, although scientists, you know, we always say an outgoing scientist is one who looks at your shoes when he talks to you or she talks to you. But anyway, as a human being, what would it mean to discover this? Why, why is there so much interest in this particular signal and in, and in the field of SETI in general? Well, you know, the thing that we're interested in most is ourselves, right? <laughs> That's what people want to talk about and think about is ourselves. And in this case, what we're trying to do is figure out how we fit into the cosmos. What is our place in the universe? Uh, so I think that's what intrigues people. And there, you know, there are all kinds of possibilities. So perhaps we will <clears throat> discover another intelligent uh, technological species out there. And statistically, they're going to be older than we are. Right. Um, and the question of how you become an old, stable technological civilization is a very interesting one because we're in this adolescent phase. Right. And it's not clear that we have a long future. Mm -hmm. But the detection of a signal uh, would would show us that it is possible to have a long future. Someone else made it through. 
And and the reason that we can guarantee with a single detection that it's po- that we're talking about a long future is the fact that in order to make a detection, two technological civilizations have to be close to one another, close spatially and overlapping in time, cotemporal. Mm-hmm. And in a 10 billion year history of this galaxy, the only way that it's likely that two technological civilizations are going to be around at the same time is if they persist for a long time, in cosmic times, not in human times. And so we can have certain confidence that any signal we detect is going to be coming from a long-lived civilization and just the proof that it's possible to get there mm-hmm. from where we are today, it seems to me incredibly important and hopeful. Yeah. When I uh, <clears throat> when I heard recently, I had on Sarah Seeger from MIT uh, discussing uh, phosphine on Venus. How did you react to that? I haven't talked to you about that since that announcement and the subsequent uh, sort of controversy that's erupted from it. I have had, uh, I do have an invitation, I should say, to Jane Greaves, who's the lead author of the study. She's hopefully going to come on next, early next year. But oh, how did you react, you know, personally? Did you, were, were you, uh, are there things you'd like to see? I mean, I'm happy to put in a word with, with Sarah and uh, Jane. <laughs> well, um, when I, when I saw that, I thought, okay, so here there are two questions. Did they get did they get the right line? Because it was a single line identification. So usually when we study molecules in the interstellar medium and we're looking for new species, you require multiple uh, transitions to be detected. This is a single transition. And secondly, um, are we so sure that we have exhausted all the possibilities in the chemical network? that could produce phosphine in conditions that aren't like our laboratory. Uh, so I, I think the authors tried to address both of those, but I think that there's there's room for skepticism. Nevertheless, they should have announced what they found because you want other people looking at it. You want other people trying to do um, additional observations to verify or um, negate. Mm-hmm. I had on also, it was the, uh, just announced, it was the, I think it was the 24th anniversary of the passing of Carl Sagan. This year I've had on Andrewian and Sasha Sagan, the first mother-daughter combo on the Into the Impossible podcast. So that was quite a treat. Um, and everyone was sharing their recollections of, of Carl Sagan. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your rec- recollections of Carl and working together, of course, uh, as you guys did. And then we'll take some questions from the audience and uh, I'll talk to you as long, I, I know you've got a hard break at 12 o'clock, but what are your recollections of Carl Sagan? What, what did he mean to you personally and to science in general? Well, Carl was a spectacular communicator. He had the ability to get an audience um, fired up and enthused and seeing the the world through his eyes, right? Um, he, he, well, I had some really in personal relationships with Carl. Um, so I was undergoing um, treatment for breast cancer while Carl was doing his second round of um treatment for his his cancer and so that was a bond i mean it was it's it's a strange bond but we we talked about how uh, how mortal we felt and how difficult it was to tolerate these poisons that you were ingesting um he he had had much earlier carl um who was on our board of of trustees at the SETI Institute, Carl had had some surgery or um, exploratory surgery, actually, to figure out why he was bleeding out. It was a rupture of an old scar in his um, his esophagus. And after that experience, um, Carl picked up a little bit of a King Carl attitude that, that irked me, right, because... You know, he understood how little time any of us have and how important it is to make use of it. But to um, to treat secretaries or support staff in a way that says, I'm more important than you are, right? It, 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 irked, it, it really irked me, but 
prior to that, Carl had been um, a real inspiration. And I was back at Cornell um, and went to a cocktail party at Carl's house. And he and Annie took me aside and they said, mm, Carl's writing a science fiction novel. And I said, oh, I know. The New York Times just told us what kind of an advance he got. And we're all so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Anne said, well, you may think that you recognize someone in the book, but I think you'll like her. And I said, oh, come on. Just, just make sure that she doesn't eat ice cream cones for lunch because that was something that I did at the time and I got teased a lot about it and people made all kinds of um, funny remarks about that. And so, okay, then Carl sent me a pre-publication copy of, of Contact and I read it and I'm going, wait, wait, how does Carl know this, right? That's me, how does he know this? And it turns out that I'm just absolutely prototypical of women my age who ended up uh, entering a male-dominated science or engineering career. Mm. And after I got my PhD, I went to a meeting in Washington, D.C., sponsored by, I think it was the American Institute of in Science. Mm -hmm. um, American, well, AWIS, whatever that is. And I met, I, I, worked, I walked into a room full of 80 women, bright, incredibly curious and intelligent women and I'd never done that I was always walking into a room full of men and often I was the only female so I met these women and it was huge it changed it was life-changing for me right and we sat around and we did this kind of um, amateur uh, psychology how we were trying to figure out how we made it through a leaky pipeline when so many others uh, had had dripped out and a couple of things that surprised me, um, a really statistically significant majority of us had um, been influenced by our dads when we were young, our fathers were our universe, and then our dads had died while we were young. And it was horrible, but in terms of the impact is that we all learned this important lesson about carpe diem, right? So I, if I didn't ask my dad a question today, I always figured he was going to be there tomorrow to answer it. Mm. And then I learned, no, you can't count on that. So you really do have to take advantage of opportunities when they come along. And so we had all learned that at an early age, and um, it allowed us to, to seize opportunities when they showed up. Mm. And the other thing was that we were all competitive, right? But back then, it was so early, it was pre-Title IX. So we wanted to compete, and there were no women's sports that you could compete in in high school. But the one thing you could compete for was being a cheerleader or being a baton twirler, a drum majorette. <laughs> and so uh, an un, un, you know, unexpectedly large number of us had been tree or leaders or drum majorettes in our high school careers. So I, there was a little study that was written up after this meeting and talking to Carl one day on the phone, I was, I was telling him about this and, and I sent him that report. <laughs> and that's where he got, I think, a lot of the characteristics of the female protagonist. <clears throat> wow, yeah, he was certainly uh, he was certainly a titan and had a huge influence on me. And not only because, let's see if I can find it. We got to get one of you, but I've been using this guy a lot lately. This is, of course, none other than my Carl Sagan sock puppet, uh, finger puppet. But uh, and I hope to get one of you made up, commissioned by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. So that's the only plug I'm going to do. Actually, I'm going to do another plug if you'll bear with me for a second. Thank everybody for tuning in to the Into the Impossible podcast. It's such a treat to have Jill Tarter just to have a little break here. Jill is, of course, the subject of the book Making Contact. Here's a picture of that book. 
cover by our mutual friend Sarah Scholes, who uh, wrote that book, and she was a guest this past summer on the Into the Impossible podcast. As you know, Jill, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is one of the number one reasons that academics don't write papers. So I want everybody to take a break and stretch your finger and push the subscribe button, the like button, leave a comment, leave a thumbs up if you think that aliens are real and that ET is out there somewhere. That will help the show immensely to attract great, talented guests like Jill Tarter. Jill, as you know, this is the 60th, sorry, yeah, this is the 60th anniversary of SETI in some sense, the Drake equation, and I believe it was Project Osmos is about that vintage. I want to ask you, um, I'm getting a question, what is uh, from an, uh, a person, a user by the name of Stock Investor? I wonder if that's what his parents named him. But anyway, Stock Investor asked me to ask you, is there anything that happened at SETI during your uh, tenure there's the Bernard, you're the Bernard Oliver chair, um, uh, and did anything happen there that the public didn't find out about that you can talk about? Uh, there are no conspiracies, right? Yeah. There's no, nothing hidden. We did have, um, back a long time ago, I think it was 97, 98, we did have a false positive that kept us going for more than a day. And uh, indeed, it, it was very, it was a really good case because it showed us that it's impossible to keep a secret. Right? <laughs> we eventually figured out that the signal that we were getting uh, was from the SOHO spacecraft in orbit around the sun. Mm. But before um, we got to that conclusion, Seth Shostak and my colleagues at the SETI Institute, I was at the observatory, um, were getting calls from the media saying, hmm, here's something interesting is going on, you want to talk about it. And fortunately, Seth said, no, no, not yet. Let, let us work on this for a bit. But nobody had called up the newspaper uh, to tell them about this. But it did, in fact, leak out and made us very um, conscious of the fact that it's going to be hard to follow this protocol that we've established, which wants us to um, confirm and get a, an independent confirmation, if possible, of a signal before we tell the world. Mm. And actually, some people have suggested, I'm talking with David Brin over the weekend, who's uh, listening in the chat room. He says hello to you, watching you. Uh, hi, <laughs> uh, hi, David. Hi, everybody out there. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I want to uh, point out that you know, David was sort of suggesting, I mean, one pro possibility is that it could be a hack, right? The signal, Proxima Centauri signal. Have you, uh, do you have protocols against that, uh, in addition to not you know, notifying the media before passing certain tests? But do you have protocols against hacking? Well, um, we have been hacked in the past. Mm. Um, it was pretty obvious, and um, but nevertheless, it caused us to spend additional telescope time trying to track down something. Um, that is actually the reason for this independent confirmation that we claim as a gold standard, mm. because it's going to be hard for someone to do a hack that hacks two different telescopes when you don't necessarily know what the second telescope is going to be for that independent confirmation. So that's one reason that that's one of our requirements. Mm. We, we take hacking, you know, I think that we're an attractive target. Yeah. This summer I had on uh, David Kaiser and earlier in the year Paul Davies who wrote a book called The Eerie Silence. And as we come up on the 60th anniversary, and it's the 10th anniversary since Paul Davies' book, The Eerie Silence, um, what stock do you put into uh, the evidence or lack thereof for, you know, uh, for potential, not intelligent life, but life forms, a shadow biosphere, or maybe even intelligent in the form of these lurkers that he and the Benford boys and even David Brin have speculated about? Um. They're all interesting speculations. There are not yet any data to corroborate. Mm. So, um, you know, in some sense, although 60 years seems like a long time for humans, it's a very short time um, for the cosmos. And if you think about <clears throat> the nine, excuse me, <clears throat> the nine-dimensional haystack that we're trying to search through for this needle that we prize, you know, frequencies, directions on the sky, modulations, polarization, sensitivity, all of this stuff. Um, and I did an exercise when SETI turned 50, right? And I said, okay, 
what's the range of each of these parameters that we might need to search in order to find uh, evidence. And then I made a nine-dimensional volume, not sophisticated, but just multiplied all those volumes together. And I said, all right, this nine-dimensional <coughs> search space, I'm going to set the volume of this search space equal to the volume of all the world's oceans. And then ask the question, how much of the oceans have we searched as a way to make an analogy? Turned out, at age 50, we'd searched one glass mm. of the ocean. By 10 years later, it was more like a small hot tub. <laughs> so we're getting better. We're getting bigger um, and exponentially fast. Yeah. But, you know, if you're looking at, to answer the question, are, are there any fish in the ocean? And you dip a glass of water, a glass into the ocean and, and look at what comes out and you don't see any fish, you're not going to conclude, I don't think, that there are no fish in the ocean, but you're going to conclude that you need a bigger glass or more of them, mm -hmm. right? You haven't searched very hard. And so I don't think we should be surprised that after 60 years we haven't found any evidence, even if life and technology out there is abundant. Right? There's, there's a great... The last sentence of the initial 1959 and morrison paper says something that's very wise. It says, probability of success is difficult to estimate. But if you never search, chance of success is zero. Yeah. That, and that, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. The, the great uh, SETI researcher Wayne Gretzky said, you miss every shot you don't take. Uh, I think that's that's the same kind of uh, sentiment that you're expressing. Yes, I remember uh, back in 2001. Actually, in 2000, I was a postdoc at Stanford, and I, I've conveyed this to you that I wouldn't be sitting here at least at UC San Diego in this branch of the of the uh, wave function in a many worlds interpretation were it not for you, as I describe uh, in my book, that you came to uh, to Stanford to give a wonderful colloquium. I begged my uh, friends and the faculty there to let me come to dinner with Jill. She's my hero. And, uh, and, and I eventually connived my way into it. But uh, through a torturous series of events, I ended up getting fired after that. But, but that's not a big deal. We'll, we'll, we can postpone that, uh, that branch of the wave function for some other time. Uh, I'm getting uh, questions that people are, are curious about uh, these, this you know, kind of notion of searching and the nine-dimensional playing field like you talked about. Maybe you can explain what that is and how looking in other wave bands that were really just on the horizon uh, back in 2000 when I first met you, uh, that are now becoming more popular, including my close colleague and friend Shelley Wright, who's a professor at UC San Diego here with me, uh, are looking in different wavelengths. Does that add to this multidimensional haystack? And, and first of all, well, that, what does that haystack mean? Okay. So um, let me enumerate on my fingers so I may make sure I get nine. So, <laughs> Unless you're an alien, you'll, you'll get eight. Right. <laughs> so there are, um, there are three dimensions in space that we need to explore. There's a time dimension, right? There's the whole question of frequency or wavelength. What, where should we be looking in the electromagnetic spectrum? Assuming that the right thing to be looking for is a signal. Um, there's modulation. Is there information on that signal? How is it encoded? And how will that detect, how will that affect the kinds of detectors that we need to build? And lastly, how sensitive do we have to be because we don't know how powerful a transmitter might be or how far away it is and so those are the the nine dimensions that we need to um, look through even if um, we've made the right assumption that it's an electromagnetic signal we should be looking for um, there have been some interesting speculations in science fiction about information being encoded on gravitational waves um, on other forms of uh, communication possibilities, other particles that go between stars. Uh, we have reasons for favoring the electromagnetic spectrum, but those reasons are not necessarily absolute. They have to do with the physics that we currently understand. They have to do with the technology that we have in the 21st century. So, you know, we freely admit that we might be doing um, an absolutely fantastic job at exactly the wrong search. Hmm. But until we develop a new technology or some new physics points us in a different direction, 
um, we don't know what else to search for. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you put on your Bayesian, on your Bayesian cap, um, I'm getting a question from a, a listener, Kumasan, who's asking, what is it uh, more likely, in your opinion, or based on Bayesian reasoning, would aliens be similar to us in some sense? I've, I've always made the point, I'll make it to you, uh, I made it to Paul Davies and he slapped me around, but I said, you know, we wouldn't be having, you know, these conversations or even this technology if it wasn't for, you know, dinosaurs existing on Earth and you made a joke in your in your TED talk, which I'll put a link to, you know, the dinosaurs didn't have a really good space program. If they did, they might still be here, which I agree with. Uh, and and the question of you know whether or not uh, one can uh, one can exist though as a technological civilization, we exist because of it, because the dinosaurs no longer exist, perhaps. And and we certainly owe a lot of our longevity to planets like Jupiter and Saturn that just participated in this grand conjunction from our vantage point. Uh, and so without those planets, those gas, we might have been bombarded early on during the heavy early bombardment. So what, you know, in your mind is more likely uh, that that there would be uh, another type of intelligent technological life form, as you've often emphasized to me and elsewhere, or that there's, you know, microbial slime, which which would be interesting, or phosphine generating, you know, microbes, uh, which would be interesting, but not technological. Would that kind of uh, dichotomy, would you expect that aliens are more likely to be like us or more likely to be like bac- uh, bacteria? Well, from our point of view, in terms of trying to look for techno signatures, doesn't matter, right? They have to have the ability to build some sort of transmitter or to modify their environment in ways that are um, visible from long distances. Uh, Whether they're a colonial entity made up of lots of small microscopic uh, uh, entities, or whether they're, you know, big like us with opposable thumbs and the ability to build things. Um, It really doesn't matter because we're not looking for them precisely we're looking for the results of their actions, how they use technology. Right. And there's a book by Adam uh, Frank, I think at Rochester, called Light of the Stars, in which he says that the most, you know, most promising signature, techno signature, maybe uh, would be looking for global warming or some greenhouse effect that would show, you know, agriculture is is happening, perhaps. Uh, <clears throat> That's hard to do. It is, yes. We're beginning, to get, we're beginning to get the technologies to image exoplanets and derive some information from, from those images. But you know, the brightness contrast in the optical between a planet and its star is 10 to the 10th. Mm-hmm. In the infrared, it's only 10 to the 8th. But it is really difficult uh, to make an image of a dim, small object so close to a very bright star. Um, and we're getting there, and it's really exciting. I mean, that's the only reason I'm bummed about being old, is because it's going to take a while to get those kinds of observing capabilities, and I might not be around to see what we find, and I, I'm curious. Yes, I'll ask you about that later on as I come to the, uh, to the end in 15, 20 minutes. But um, I want to go back to some of your other, you've had this uh, storied career in, in history of astronomy as one of our uh, pioneering astronomers in, in many ways, and, and really being the driving force behind Seth. I can praise you in ways that might make you uncomfortable, but, uh, but I'd say it to Seth Shostak, and I have said it to him. But I want to ask you, turning back to your original work on, on objects that, thanks to you, are called brown dwarfs. Do you keep up with that research, the research that you did back in the, you know, in the late 70s, uh, for example, or, or have you just sort of left that to other other folks? Well, I read about it, <clears throat> but it's not something that I've spent any time trying to push forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. And, and the, as a thesis topic, my advisor um, was wondering about what at the time we called missing mass, right? The looking at the um, velocities of stars at the edges of the galaxy, um, we concluded that there needed to be more gravitational mass somehow than we could add up by the masses of all the stars and dust and gas. And so, what could these be? And and the question was, well, you know, it's a different set of physics 
that determines whether a collapsing ga- cloud of gas um, gets hot enough at, at its core to stably burn uh, hydrogen to helium and, and shine. That's a different set of physics than the, than the physics that determines um, how many stars of what mass you create when a molecular cloud collapses. Mm. And so we were thinking that maybe um, there are enough tiny, tiny stars that don't have enough mass to burn stably um, hydrogen to helium. And those might be sitting out there and they might be responsible for this missing mass. And if so, what would they look like? How would you find them observationally? So that's what I was working on in my thesis. And, you know, you, you create, actually, <laughs> was using bomb coats from Livermore uh, <laughs> to make the uh, interior model of the star. And then you need to put an atmosphere on the outside to, to see how um, the radiation actually gets out and at what rate. But I couldn't, given the atmospheres, um, I'm sorry, the opacity tables at the time, low temperature, low pressure, they were terrible. And I could never make it work. So I could never tell you what color these little things might be. And Edmund Land once said, brown is not a color. <laughs> so supposed to black dwarfs or red dwarfs or um, infrared dwarfs, we just called them brown dwarfs. <laughs> and the name stuck. I was speaking. Yeah, and there's a lot more missing mass than we once thought, right? That's the whole dark matter. Right. Yeah, I was speaking last night with uh, Giant Narlikar, uh, who is a giant of cosmology and worked with Fred Hoyle uh, back in the 60s for his PhD thesis at Cambridge. And of course, they were the pr- uh, most prominent ardent defenders of the steady state model. And actually, Giant still believes that at age 88 or so. And that interview will come out on the Dr. Brian Keating uh, YouTube channel and on Into the Impossible podcast. Again, please, everybody. Exercise your finger. Buy the book Making Contact by Sarah Scholes. Uh, uh, Jill gets uh, 35% of every book sold. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't get that. But I do want to make an announcement. But the Fetty Institute does get something. So yes. Buy the- and I'm actually going to make an announcement. I am going to match any super chat, any donation through YouTube at least, uh, any super chat. I will match two to one in my annual donation to the SETI Institute. So please do that. If you want to give some money, I will double it because I love the mission that they that they are doing. They're really the the best. I, I know you spoke disparagingly about cheerleaders, but I act as a cheerleader for SETI Institute because SETI does such great work, not just for looking for extraterrestrial intelligence and, and so forth, which is the most one of the most interesting things, if not the most interesting thing besides cosmology uh, that one could study, but because they do so much awesome actual astronomy and scientific outreach. So please give. I will double it at uh, a minimum up to unlimited amounts, although I don't know how much a Norwegian kroner is. Stock investor, it's his second $100 or 100 Norwegian kroner donation. He asks, or she, or she asks, what does Jill consider the biggest achievements of the SETI program? I think uh, now in my old philosophical age that our biggest achievement to date has to make it has been to make people uh, change their perspective, right? So talking with you, giving lectures, talking to people around the world, and getting them to think seriously about the idea of life beyond Earth, um, life that would be spectacularly different from us because it evolved and co-evolved in a different planet or in a different way. Um, I think that whole exercise is like holding up a mirror to all of the humans on this planet and saying, look, all of you in that mirror, you're all the same when compared to something else out there. And it trivializes the differences among humans that we sometimes fight wars and kill one another over. And I think it's really important to instill this cosmic perspective because we have all these challenges that we're going to have to solve, and they don't respect national boundaries, right? We're going to have to figure out how to work globally and cooperatively. And I think that if SETI can help people out there have this perspective of being an earthling uh, and, and behaving that way, I think we can go a long way to making sure that we do have a long future. 
Hey, everybody. I just want to stop in the middle of this podcast as you're super excited and super interested in all the cool stuff we're hearing about from today's guest. And I want to do so to make an advertisement. No, this isn't for manscaping or some other type of product that I've been pitched to pitch to you. I don't think I've found quite the connection and resonance with manscaping, but maybe other things will uh, fit the bill. But I do want to advertise on behalf of some other podcasts. And why would I do that? Well, it's kind of like when I get asked to blurb a book. Uh, After all, books are zero-sum games, too. If you're reading somebody else's book, you're not going to read Losing the Nobel Prize or my upcoming books, uh, which I hope to be announcing shortly on this very podcast. But instead, I do want to recommend to you that you listen to some podcasts by my good friends, some of whom gave me a start on their podcast long before the Into the Impossible podcast. First one is a young man, a graduate student named Brandon Drachler. Drachler, you can find him on Twitter at T-S-O-T-U pod. And that stands for the State of the Universe podcast. And just recently in late November, he interviewed Dr. Daniel Whiteson, who's one of the other podcast hosts that I'm going to recommend to you. So Daniel and his uh, colleague and friend, Jorge Cham, they host the Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe podcast. You're going to hear a lot of universes here. And these podcasts are really interesting and valuable contributions to uh, the scientific podcast world. And I really enjoy listening to them. And they've had me on their podcast. Both of these uh, uh, podcasts have hosted me as well. And the the last podcast that I want to recommend is is a podcast by two up and coming uh, podcasters who started a podcast over the summer. And uh, they are named Daniel Hooper, another Daniel, and Shalma, his co-host Shalma, uh, is a uh, is a graduate student. I believe she's at Columbia. Is Shalma, and Dan is a, a physicist at Fermilab. And so, what makes them so interesting is that they go deep into the podcast world. And this is Shalma Wegsman. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention her last name but she's soon to be a PhD or maybe she already is a PhD at NYU. And she is a co-host of the Why This Universe podcast with Dan Hooper. They do tremendous work. Also, there is a podcast Twitter account called Why This Universe. And they claim to discuss the biggest ideas in physics broken down. And they come out with episodes every other Monday. So please tune into these podcasts and hope you'll stay subscribed to the Into the Impossible podcast uh, where we do uh, cover things in the universe and beyond into the multiverse, but we also do other things that I hope you'll find fascinating as well. Uh, Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with many more Nobel Prize winners, as well as with, uh, with maybe even a solo episode or two about my ideas as to where I think experimental physics should be going. I've had a lot of guests on the podcast, and I will continue to do so. Folks like Eric Weinstein, folks like Garrett Lisi, Stephen Wolfram, and Julian Barber is coming on the show. But I want to think maybe a little bit less in 2021 about theories of everything and more about experiments of everything. So stay tuned for that, as well as guests totally outside the realm of the physical sciences. Look for an interview with uh, psychologists and with lifestyle optimizers and maybe uh, some brand name podcasters that you know and love. So with that, I'll end this quick quote unquote advertising break, return you to the action on today's podcast episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you so much for being a friend of the show. Please do help me out. The biggest help you can do costs you nothing is to rate the podcast and share it with other people. So I hope you'll rate it highly. I read each and every comment. So if you want me to check out your theory of everything, leave me a comment and I'll at least read it. And that will be one way that we can continue to grow and share the love of this wonderful, magical, mysterious multiverse, perhaps, that we inhabit. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And now please enjoy the rest of this podcast of Into the Impossible. Another thing we did to be concrete, Mm -hmm. right? We built the Allen telescope, right? Yes. (laughs) So we, for for the first time, we built a large, um, an array out of a large number of small dishes, right? And proved that that can work, that we now have enough computing capability to uh, combine the signals from all those telescopes in interesting ways. And now, as we go into the future, the square kilometer array, um, the next generation VLA, they're all going to be built 
as this large number of small dish concept. And so I'm very proud that we demonstrated that at the SETI Institute and at UC Berkeley that this can work. Yeah. Oh, great. We're getting a lot of good uh, donations here. Thank you so much. Reminder, I will donate a match two to one for the SETI Institute. Any amounts donated in the super chat. Or you can uh, you can also uh, Venmo me at Dr. Brian, Dr. Brian Keating if you like. I will double any contributions made today. Uh, Jill, I want to ask you. I, we hear often, as Sarah wrote in her follow up to the smash hit Making Contact, she wrote a book called we, "They Are Already Here" about why human beings are seeing saucers. So I want to ask about that. Um, why do we see saucers? Does that interest you? And have there been any credible sightings? To your opinion, these Navy fighter pilots we hear about all the time is any of that convincing to you not yet and <clears throat> i think it's just the 21st century's version of angels and archangels right? how so we, what does that mean well um it's what we see it's what we think about it's what we project onto uh sightings of things that we don't understand i mean 20 years ago uh there was people were saying that there were all of these UFOs associated with large thunder clouds. And when we got enough, um, and, and including pilots flying at high altitudes, and then when we got enough satellites that were looking down at the Earth with enough time resolution, uh, we found out that lightning travels up as well as down. Right. So these are now called sprites and elves, and it was a new piece of physics that we discovered. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that people see things, they really do see things. I think the problem is the interpretation of those things having to do with spacecraft. That's where we are lacking in evidence. Hmm. And yes, I always see things. There was a podcast by uh, David Fravor, who's a Navy fighter pilot on Lex Friedman, who's got a very popular podcast. Lex is interested in all sorts of things extraterrestrial. But uh, he made this big point about how pilots are, you know, really good at seeing things that are far away and spatial relations. And so I'm a pilot, uh, you know, private pilot, as I know you are uh, as well. Although I don't know if you're still current. Um, I would take you up in a heartbeat. Someday we'll have to do that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I once got pulled over by a, a police officer for speeding. And it was right after I passed my test. I thought I was a young uh, Chuck, Chuck Yeager. Uh, may he rest in peace. And I said, well, listen, officer, you know, I'm skilled at hand-eye coordination. And I know all these things. And he's like, that's a totally different skill set. And he said, I'm a pilot. And if I have to rely on my hand-eye coordination, I'm going to crash. <laughs> so I, I discount these things as well. Uh, and yet, I think there's a lot of resistance. There's this uh, gentleman, Mick West. Are you familiar with him, Jill? No, actually, that's someone that I've not encountered. Uh, he does the debunking. Uh, Michael Shermer has has um, helped to popularize some of this as well as a friend and former guest. But Mick West is doing work to kind of show how you could get the exact same pattern, these so-called tic-tac patterns, et cetera. Right. So I think it's worth listening to Lex Friedman's uh, podcast number 122. He mentions this um, at some point. Let's see. We only have about 15 minutes left. I want to make sure I get all my guests. A reminder, we're talking with uh, my friend and uh, role model and the uh, reason I'm here here in San Diego, uh, Dr. Uh, Jill Tarter, uh, who is joining us. And I, I want to um, sort of understand where is it, um, where is the SETI Institute's Allen Telescope Array? Where is that, uh, what, what is its current status? I know that uh, the Making Contact describes it as sort of a cliffhanger where it's at currently, but uh, how big into the ocean, how many uh, uh, hot tubs per, per year can we expect to be searching with Allen Telescope? Well, the Allen Telescope Array is in Northern California, um, it's close to uh, Mount Lassen. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you are going to visit Lassen National Park, you should come on down the road and, and stop by and see the Allen Telescope Array. We currently have 42 six-meter dishes. Our initial ambition was to build 350. But, you know, uh, we thought we'd done all the technology development until we started to build. And then we found out there's a lot more to do. And so we we ran out of money before we could get to 350. And if you're going to stop somewhere, uh, seemed to me 42 was the right place, right? <laughs> it's a lucky um, number. You know why? Do you know why it's a lucky number? Not in addition to uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. It's, it's the most fortuitous number there is. Oh. Brian, That's a groan. You didn't say Sorry. That. 
Oh, that's Sorry. a girl. Yes. <laughs> I'm a dad. What can I say? We're, uh, we, we first began observing in 2007, and right now we're retrofitting um, the antennas with a new spectacular feed designed in, in most part by my husband. And that feed allows us to look at more bandwidth at any moment and to have a lower system temperature. Uh, so to be able to see fainter sources, um, and we're in the we're in the process of doing that. And again, it's one of these things where um, we have some funding uh, from Franklin Antonio, who's here in San Diego, yeah, yes. friend of our, um, friend of us. Uh, yes. But it it you know we don't have all the funding we we would like to have, and so it's going a bit slower. Uh, it's being used uh, on and off to do SETI observations and also to observe fast radio bursts, right? These mysterious radio sources uh, that are coming from, most of them from extragalactic distances and trying to understand what the physics is there. So uh, we're not on the the air with our standard 24 hour a day, seven day a week SETI observing program, um, but we're getting there and looking forward to being back to doing those observing observations and it's it's one of these things you do it from your bedroom right this remotely controlled telescope that works on its own and and hopefully doesn't miss any signals and 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 announces to us when there are interesting things that it needs help figuring out is um is it possible that uh well so what's the status of seti at home is that is that no longer active Right now, it is no longer active. They shut it down earlier this year. Um, there are lots and lots of data, um, and they need to spend some time understanding what it is that they have detected thus far. Mm-hmm. Very good, yes. Yeah, it was one of the first citizen science campaigns. It was extremely popular, and I think it uh, was almost a victim of its own success in some ways because it was so powerful it could uh, it could occupy a lot of uh, otherwise dead cycles that other otherwise uh, you know, well-intentioned corporations like Google and Dropbox would like to be using. So, uh, but hopefully it will be uh, it'll always be well. Hopefully it'll be resuscitated at some point. And uh, and I want to uh, congratulate uh, SETI pro, uh, um, SETI at home for so I think it was twenty years at least that it uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're coming to the end of the... We always get um, asked about SETI at home, but that actually was a very clever project out of UC Berkeley. Right. Yeah, that was part of Berkeley. Um, And uh, so, yeah, so I want to uh, ask just a couple more questions from the audience. Uh, First of all, William... uh, I can't pronounce it. I think it's Willie. Willie, I am, uh, is asking, what is is there a protocol if we do detect if you're if we are successful in kind of uh, having a a uh, unambiguous message from an extraterrestrial technological civilization? Is there a protocol to deal with that? Well, yes, there has been a protocol for a very long time, uh, starting back in the '80s, under the auspices of the International Academy of Astronautics and the International Institute of Space Law. We tried to figure out. Um, what we should do, and indeed, we we started this protocol, um, so-called post-detection protocol, as a way to encourage our Soviet uh, colleagues to have some backing that they should, having decided that what they were seeing was real and potentially an ET signal, um, to give them the backing that would allow them to tell the world, right, because... It wasn't clear that that information would ever get out of the former Soviet Union. And over the years, that protocol has has morphed. Um, When we were a NASA project, there was a a step in there that described which associate administrator would uh, notify the executive branch, right? So now that we're no longer a NASA project and privately funded, that's left. But it's still basically common sense. So you do everything that you can at the discovery site with what tools you have available there to show that there's really something that you think you're seeing. And then because of hacking and just to um, have verification, you go and get an independent confirmation uh, from a telescope that has software you didn't write and hardware you didn't build. And if if they can confirm it, then 
the next step is to tell the world, and what you tell the world depends on the nature of what you're seeing. Because you'd like um, to have as many different facilities with as many different types of detectors looking at this and trying to figure out what it is. So we do tell the world, but not instantly, because we want to get this independent confirmation. And then uh, Kumasan is asking, what is the impact of the loss of our beloved Arecibo radio telescope? Well, Arecibo was certainly, <clears throat> prior to FAST, uh, in China, Arecibo was our most sensitive telescope. And we, um, up until 2004, we were fortunate enough to have something like 15 or 20% of time on that telescope to to do SETI observations. In 2004, we decided we wanted to be on the air 24-7 and began building our own telescope, uh, the Allen Telescope Array. But Arecibo uh, has <clears throat> some unique characteristics. It has um, a planetary radar. It has a um, two-megawatt me- two transmitter that with the large dish has a huge gain and can focus this transmitter uh, onto an asteroid, for example. It can um, uh, improve the determination of the asteroid's orbit after it's been detected, but it also can actually map the shape uh, of the asteroid. And so that planetary radar unique. There's, there is a radar at Goldstone on a much smaller telescope, but that's a loss. Um, sensitive radio astronomy observations of millisecond pulsars as part of a pulsar timing program in the Nanograv project, which involves a lot of observatories around the globe, but Arecibo, when you put that into the mix, really did improve the sensitivity. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's sad. Um, but it just shows you how difficult it is to maintain high technology in a very trying environment mm. of humidity and salt. So, uh, thank you. Uh, I have a question, a super chat from my good friend Jacob Kuhn, who's been helping out with this live stream. Jacob, thank you so much. Ten bucks which will get turned into 20 bucks. Last chance for folks to donate and have the money taken out of this poor uh, state university professor's salary. But I love to do it because SETI Institute deserves every penny, and I am a longtime donor, uh, frequent speaker, and just uh, one of the biggest fans of the SETI Institute. And all that, I have to be honest, is thanks to Jill. Don't say anything, Jill. Uh, to Seth, because he'll get jealous, and he won't give me that cup of coffee. I'm really waiting for that cup of coffee yeah. in 2027, I think he's going to give it to me. But Jacob is asking... Are we going to put a telescope on the moon, and will it have any uh, validity or any uh, utility for SETI searches? Oh, well, we're talking about it, and in particular on the lunar far side, because when you think about all of the orbital uh, assets that we're putting around this planet um, with lots and lots of transmitters, it's getting pretty radio loud, and we spend more than half of our computing trying to discriminate Um, what we call radio frequency interference from something that actually may be coming from a distant star. So the lunar far side is quiet. We recognized this long ago, I think it was 1974, um, the Astronomical Union went to the ITU and said, um, let's create something called the shielded zone, (coughs) shielded zone of the moon, in which there will be no transmitters. So we've been thinking about it Unfortunately, NASA is planning to build a gateway um, right above, in orbit above that shielded zone of the moon. So we're hoping that we can convince them that as they build this with communications capability, they build it so that there are two frequencies. So at, at one time, we'll get to be able to listen at all frequencies un, uh, uninterfered with. So um, the... The challenge is likely to be regolith and how how it impacts anything with moving parts. You know, the, the Apollo astronauts came back into the air capsule coated in this dust and it even got into their lungs. So it's very, um, it's hard to work with, but 
particularly with low frequency uh, receivers, which could in fact have no moving parts, um, but just be uh, essentially huge dipoles wrapped up in a in a polyurethane um, case and pulled out on the lunar surface to uh, expose them. Um, that low frequency is is possible from the moon at lower frequencies than we can observe from Earth because of the uh, ionospheric cutoff mm. that we have here. So the lunar far side has a lot going for it. Um, I think it's probably above my capabilities to try and raise the funds for that. So we're going to do that if we do it. We're going to do it in conjunction with something else that is going to the far side of the moon to create infrastructure. Well, who knows? You might get a call from a billionaire orbiting around and some satellite in the not-too-distant future. I hope you do. Uh, and uh, I think it's just so amazing, the work that you've done, and you're inspiring literally millions of people around the world, Jill, in addition to the way you've inspired me and been a role model to me. Uh, now I want to finish up with the uh, final three questions that I ask all my guests, if you're game, before we uh, release each other to our respective telecons. Uh, the first one is, I want to ask you, uh, if you were to leave an ethical will, not a material will, but an ethical will, which is uh, sort of similar to what Alfred Nobel did, as I describe in Losing the Nobel Prize, he not only endowed you know, these golden pieces of medallion that I've been stealing off of all my guests who come on who have Nobel Prizes and didn't lose them, they actually won them. But uh, Alfred said the invention or discovery must be for the benefit of humankind. Uh, so it was an ethical will plus a material will. I want to ask you, what sort of wisdom would you like to leave for your biological progeny, but also your ideological progeny, which I, I count myself as one? I would really like to turn Earthling into a meme, right? <laughs> I would like everyone uh, to go to their electronic devices and pull up the profiles that describe them and have them write the first thing about themselves is that they're an earthling. Hmm. And then I'd like to have them behave that way, to, to actually um, internalize this cosmic perspective hmm. and behave as global citizens. Very good. Now, the next question harkens to the name of this podcast uh, I will get to is Into the Impossible, and that relates to Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous three laws. We'll get there in one second. But before we do this, I want to ask you about uh, Arthur C. Clarke. You've surely seen 2001, A Space Odyssey, the movie. Many times. Okay. It's still in a in Enigmatic. Yes. Yes. My, uh, my, my chagrin always comes when I talk to somebody who's a sci-fi fan. They say, no, I, I've never seen the movie. But anyway, uh, I'm glad that you've seen it. You'll recall there are very many uh, uh, sort of very interesting kind of forecasts for the future. But one of them kind of goes into the, into the future really far when the primates on the savanna of Africa and later on the surface of the moon or in space, uh, the characters encounter this monolith this menacing black obelisk thing that seems to be like a time capsule meant to last for a billion years. And I always ask my guests, what would you put on a time capsule that you knew would last for a billion years? And I actually asked your friend Andrew in this, and she said, I did it. I put my brainwaves on, a, on the Voyager golden disc and sent it out for four billion years, NASA told her. But I want to ask you, Jill, what would you put on a monolith? What, uh, what sort of fact about the, of, of, of the universe would you think most deserves projection into the future? I would say that we were, <clears throat> we were here, we were many, then perhaps not so many, but all of us were curious. And that's what humanity is about, being curious and trying to understand our place in the cosmos. Very nice. And the final question before we both break for our telecons. I always thought that astronomers would be on telescopes, but we're mostly on telecons. Is that not right? Indeed. <laughs> so the last one allows us to zoom, no pun intended, uh, backwards in time. <clears throat> so Arthur C. Clarke had these three laws. The first one, which we open our podcast up with, is his actual voice saying the following, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. His second law is that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. 
And his third law is, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the origin of the name of this podcast. I want to ask you uh, sort of advice to your former self. What aspect of life, what mysterious feature uh, of your future would you like to demystify and give advice to your former self to have the courage to go into the impossible? Yeah, um, I would say to be bolder than I was in terms of ignoring the conflation of UFOs, the little green men with SETI. And to um, to have the conviction that this scientific exploration is really worth doing. It may be multi-generational, so we have to get clever about how we fund it generation upon generation. And um, just don't listen to them, right? <laughs> do your thing and do it scientifically. Do it rigorously. Don't ever regret anything that you um that you've done or um that you've written and just go for it and and think out of the box right so electromagnetic radiation you know how and encoding well there's something that we're beginning to know about now that we didn't know when i was in graduate school called quantized photon angular momentum which might be a way of encoding information and so um yeah, just just keep going. Put your head down and ignore the noise and just keep doing what you think is worthwhile. Well, Jill, I want to thank you so much for going into the impossible. I want to ask my uh, all my listeners and, and friends out there in cyberspace to thank you for your support. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to wherever you get them. Subscribe to my email list, which you can get on drbriankeating.com, and you'll get a huge ebook that I put together from my conversations with leading astronomers replicating the great debate because that's 100 years old this year in addition right. to the Hubble Space Telescope and the International Space uh, Station are 20 and 30 years reverse chronal anyway I screwed it up but Jill we love you uh, we're so uh, honored that you came on the show thank you for being a friend uh, to me personally an inspiration to millions around the world and I wish you the best of health and luck in 2021 Thank you, Brian. It's been fun. I've never been thanked for getting somebody fired before. <laughs> that is provocative and cryptic, but read uh, read the book. You'll find out more. And Jill, have a wonderful rest of your, of your year and next year as well. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Everybody, thank you for joining on the Into the Impossible podcast. As I said, please uh, exercise your fingers regularly. Click uh, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and leave a comment on what Jill and SETI means to you and what you'd like to see them do. I will uh, take a few more uh, donations. It looks like we got uh, over $150, so hopefully they'll be getting a nice bonus, and maybe they can use that to upgrade their uh, radio receiver technology. Uh, but for now, I want to uh, uh, just let you know we've got some great guests coming up. As I mentioned, Giant Narlikar, a giant of cosmology, one of the leading figures of alternative cosmology, the steady state. What do we have to learn from that? You'll find out very soon. Lord Martin Rees is on the show. He reads my horoscope and tells me what's coming up in 2021, the mysteries of the heavens. And lastly, not leastly, we have Ray Weiss, who's uh, the godfather of, of uh, uh, astronomical telescopes using gravity and microwaves, as he's played a huge role, did a wonderful interview with him, I know you're going to enjoy it, uh, and we're hopefully getting a really cool uh, guest as well in the new year, John Preskill. Going to have Deepak Chopra. Now, before you get mad at me, it's not only Deepak Chopra, we're going to have uh, Frank Wilczek, hopefully, with Deepak Chopra, Leonard Mladenow as well. We're going to have, a, hopefully, a live stream that we can all kind of ask questions and do so, as we love to do, with humility, with honor, and with dignity and respect of all these guests, because everybody has something to learn. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, the only way to uh, to go into the impossible, no, the only way to succeed and is to subdue your ego and act more humbly than the dust. And as you know, dust is the villain of losing the Nobel Prize. 
Uh, anyway, guys, this has been fun. I'm getting loopy. It's the end of the year. It's been an awesome year. There's still more live streams to come, as I said, so stay tuned this week. I'm not signing off for the year yet. I'll let you know when that happens. It'll be midnight on uh, Jan uh, December 31st. Take care, everybody. I got to go to my telecon. I dropped my mouse, but we'll get out of here somehow or another. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Volkoff.